Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week. In this edition, Professor Jeremy Black talks to The Critic's deputy editor, Graham Stewart, about military monarchs and the relationship between crowned heads and brass hats. Professor Black, um, monarchs, going back to the times when they were warrior kings, they were lawgivers and rulers. How necessary was it for them to also be seen to be military figures uh, as well, given that many early Anglo-Saxon rulers were often portrayed as saintly figures? Um, It might be convenient for the church to portray them as saintly figures as it attempted to propagate its ideology. But the reality was, if you were a monarch that wished to be safe, you had to be a warrior. And in many senses, if you wish to elicit consent among the aristocracy, you had to be a warrior. That was certainly the case in the Anglo-Saxon period. And I think it's also could be fairly said to be the case in the Norman and medieval periods. And monarchs who were perceived as unmanly, as well as unsuccessful, um, found themselves in grave difficulties and could be overthrown. Edward II is a good example of that. Richard II is a good example. Henry VI. Henry VI fled London during Cade's revolt in 1450, and that very much compromised his reputation. Whereas, for example, Henry VII, he wasn't particularly necessarily thought of today as a warrior, not only led his army, obviously, at Bosworth in 1485, um, he also, when there was the Cornish Rising in 1497, uh, the Cornish troops got to London, um, uh, Henry VII marched out, got to Blackheath and defeated them. So I think it's fair to say that that was not just an expectation, but it was also prudential. And when you have competition with over the succession, which is very frequent, shall we say, um, Henry I and his elder brother, Robert, Duke of Normandy, or Henry I's um, uh, daughter, Matilda, and Stephen, King Stephen, Um, then it was quite necessary, or obviously the Wars of the Roses, that it was very necessary to fight and to be seen to fight. Now, where I think it's interesting is to see the extent to which this changes or does not change during the Stuart and Hanoverian period. Because if you look at that period, some monarchs are very clearly not warriors. James I of England, James VI of Scotland, uh, being a very good example. Um, Others were warriors, but unsuccessful. Uh, James II of England, James VII of Scotland. Others, William III, we tend to think of William III as Dutch William, but it's worth bearing in mind he was a Stuart through and through. He was the nephew of James II, as well as his son-in-law. William III both conquered England successfully in 1688. He was in the command of the army at the Battle of the Boyne in the decisive clash in Ireland in 1690. 
and he commanded uh, the army in the Low Countries against the French in the 1690s. So that is very much a militarized uh, perception of monarchy. Now, famously, the last monarch to command an army, the last British monarch to command an army in battle um, was George II at the Battle of Dettingen in 1743. Uh, it's worth bearing in mind that his second son, William Duke of Cumberland, was the Captain General and as such commanded at Culloden in 1746 and commanded the British Army in the Low Countries in the 1740s. So the notion that a royal should be uh, important, and that goes on, uh, George III was not much to his fury, was not allowed by his grandfather, George II, to serve in the Seven Years' War. But George III's second son, Frederick Duke of York, who's on the top of the column at Waterloo Place, was a brilliant commander-in-chief of the army, even if he was a maladroit field commander in Holland in 1799, the famous grand old Duke of York that marched them up and down the hills. But he was a brilliant commander of the army as a whole um, in the uh, early uh, 19th century. So, and of course, later, Queen Victoria's cousin, the Duke of Cambridge, whose uh, statue is in um, Whitehall, uh, was himself commander in chief. So the norm of royalty playing a major role in command positions continued into the 19th century. Having said that, I think it's fair to say that William IV was kept, out, although he was in the Navy, was kept out of positions of conflict during the French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars. George IV, in his later years, used to uh, amaze people by telling them he had been at Waterloo, which, of course, famously he hadn't done. I mean, there is the joke. Um, that he, at some royal reception, got, you know, uh, you know, said to the Duke of uh, Wellington, who, of course, was Prime Minister, you know, was I not at Waterloo? And Wellington replied, so you have often told me, Your Majesty. Um, but, you know, the fact, um, if you then go on, I mean, obviously, Prince Albert, Edward VII, did not have command positions. The future George VI was at Jutland, but you know, in a very junior capacity. So I think it's fair to say that the royal family moved from the notion of being commanders to the notion that it was proper and appropriate for at least some royals to play a role in serving their country militarily, a position that's continued to the present day, but not to have command positions. And although they might give themselves, you know, very senior, as it were, sounding titles, and, you know, between them, Prince uh, Charles, Princess Anne, etc., have some pretty serious sounding titles. Nobody was seriously suggesting that they should have been sent out to command in Iraq, say, in 2003. It would have been regarded as laughable. Is there a distinction to be made, and I'm thinking in the period before the 18th century, is there a distinction to be made between monarchs who are actually in command, which is to say they are um, leading the strategy of their forces, they're at the front of their troops, their sword is, is drawn, and those who were you know, in the, you know, march with the men in the field of battle, but actually it was their senior commanders who were really taking the military decisions. Well, that's again an excellent question. That's certainly true of Charles I during the English Civil War. 
I mean, he was there present at battles, but not um, taking the command decisions. So um, uh, that's certainly uh, the case. Um, I think if you go back to the Tudors, um, Henry VIII um, did command uh, in expeditions to France or to the Low Countries. Um, I wouldn't say that uh, it was possible to circumvent the king readily. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I think you'd find that Henry VIII was used to getting his own way. But thereafter, you see, you have a period of sustained warfare in the mid 16th century and then again in the late 16th century. But Edward VI is a minor, so he can't be in command um, in the wars of his reign, though his uncle, Lord Protector Somerset, uh, does play an important role in the invasion of Scotland. Uh, Queen Mary can't be, for, for reasons of sex, can't play a role in the war with France uh, in her reign, the war in which the British lose, sorry, the English lose Calais. Elizabeth I obviously can't play a role in the wars in Scotland and France and the Low Countries during her reign, although her favourite, Robert Earl of Leicester, is sent to uh, command the English army in the, in the Netherlands in 1585. So there's a long period that there's nobody appropriate, and you might well say that that period is really crucial, because if you're looking um, to, say, France during that period, um, uh, Henry II, Henry the Fourth, Henry the Third, um, are all significant commanders, and Henry the Second and Henry the Fourth, you know, Henry the Fourth in particular, very successfully so. And in the seventeenth century, although Louis the Thirteenth is scarcely an alpha commander, nevertheless he does trundle off and lead forces. Uh, particularly to sieges like the siege of La Rochelle, uh, the major Huguenot centre, and Louis XIV the same. Sieges tend to be more easy to stage, manage, um, the, and more predictable. Um, so I would say that the English monarchy starts to go out of line, but of course there are other particular factors. Uh, England has lost its dominions on the continent, um, which means, and indeed, although it still officially claims the French throne, it really in practical terms isn't pursuing that after the reign of Henry VIII, uh, and even during that reign he rather drops it, so that there isn't the same need or requirement to lead troops on the continent. Um, Scotland has always been an elusive uh, target, a very difficult target, a target in which it's easy to lose reputation and success, most famously so uh, with Edward II of Bannockburn. And although English armies go into Scotland in the 16th century or fight the Scots, because uh, Flodden is actually in, in England, uh, and prestige is worn that, won that way, it's quite a long way from London and it's a big high risk. Um, and then, of course, you've got the issue that uh, um, pretty uniquely among the major states, England is primarily a naval power. And I think it's fair to say that none of the Tudors are really interested in the vagaries of naval warfare, which is very difficult. 
Um, as far as the Stuarts are concerned, James II is Lord High Admiral and actually does fight and knows a fair amount about naval conflict. But other than that, he's quite unusual. I mean, Queen Anne's husband, Prince George of Denmark, is given the similar role, but he is not, you know, um, a, uh, a, a significant naval commander. And I think it's fair to say that the Navy, which has very high requirements for professionalism um, and which is astonishingly risky, uh, you know, you come quite close to your opponents and exchange fire, um, is not one that lends itself to amateurs. Um, so I think it's fair to say, and also it doesn't have the same prestige in aristocratic society. I think that's important. So that in a way there isn't the same social drive to be seen as a significant naval commander. And uh, if much of the aristocracy had been involved on the, in the Navy, then I dare say the monarch would have felt it necessary to provide a royal sprog or other to take a more prominent role. But that's not generally the case. Um, so, you know. And, and is it the case that um, the Royal Navy wasn't considered as, aristo as aristocratic um, in part, well, in part because it involved a level of professionalism, as you've just said, but but also, you know, for hundreds of years in the Middle Ages period, there isn't really a Royal Navy in the sense we'd understand it today. Ships were, were requisitioned and so on. But you know, the, the Navy is created by Henry VIII. Uh, that, that was seen as a bit of a, a, a bit of a parvenu profession for a gentleman. Or are there other reasons? Yes, that's a very good question again. I mean, I, you know, there are there is work on the Navy in the medieval period, Susan Rose, for example. And of course, um, there were some pretty spectacular battles, the naval battle off Dover in 1216, the Battle of Suisse in 1340. But you're right in substance that um, there isn't the kind of large scale institutionalization of naval power and nor the kind of dramatic warships that it would look good standing on the brow, you know, and in, in the um, and the, uh, in the bow of and then leading a um, a uh, um, a boarding force from um so yes I think I would agree with you on that uh, but also I mean I think it's part of the nature of training I mean in effect royal princes take part in leisure activities hunting riding fencing which are all activities which in a way are training them to be head of an aristocratic cadre classically of cavalry uh, and classically for them to remain on horseback and I think it's an interesting question uh, which is worth considering as to how far that becomes and when it becomes anachronistic I and mean, I think that's a, a different one we could look at um, but it's certainly not anachronistic or isn't perceived as anachronistic um, in the late 17th, early 18th century. I mean, some of Marlborough's great battles, Blenheim most classically in 1704, um, in part rely on massed cavalry attack through your opponents, in fact, in the case of Blenheim, through your opponent's centre. So cavalry there is really significant. Um, 
but I think, it, and I think it's fair to say, I mean, if you go, you know, go on, let's say just over a century afterwards to Waterloo in 1815, um, although the battle for the British is won by the infantry, nevertheless, the cavalry are perceived as taking a glorious as well as slightly foolish uh, role. Um, and obviously it has a very reasonable aristocratic component, that, that, that cavalry force, the household brigade. Is there anything um, connected with the changing nature of warfare? And I'm thinking particularly in terms of gunpowder, particularly when uh, the quality of musketry gets better. Is there a sense that you know, having a, a, a king within the line of fire where some you know, common or garden infantryman, infantryman could have a pop at him, as distinct from an earlier age of chivalry with hand-to-hand -hand, um, conflict? It, do, is that a factor potentially? Uh, I mean, obviously, George II. Again, that's, that's an interesting question. I mean, insofar as having a pop at somebody with a missile weapon, of course, the most successful pop at somebody was King Harold in 1066. And, and um, you know, I mean, that was archery. Archery, or for that matter, fire, throwing a spear, though, uh, would have been fatal before firearms. But you're right that one of the part of the discussion about the alleged social iniquity of gunpowder was the allegation that it, as it were, leveled the social playing field. Now, I think as with many discussions about warfare, that um, underrates the difficulties posed and the dangers posed by earlier conflict. I mean, obviously, uh, French um, people of prominence had died at battles like Cressy and Poitiers and Agincourt. Um, so I know, uh, you know, one's got to be careful there. Um, and it's also the case that monarchs or rulers continued to play a role in the age of gunpowder. I've mentioned Henry IV of France, who fights at battles like Arc and Ivry in the 1590s, uh, Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden, who fights at Breitenfeld, of course, gets killed, shot Lutzen in 1632, but the risk of being shot had not prevented him uh, from being willing to, to fight. And, you know, I've mentioned sieges and I've argued you know, that they are more predictable, which is definitely the case. <laughs> but if you're besieging a, uh, a fortress, there is always the danger that somebody from within fires a cannon and kills you. I mean, happened, for example, to James II's, I think, illegitimate son, the Marshal Duc de Berrick, um, who got gets his head blown off at the siege of Philipsburg during the War of the Polish Succession. So, and, and a, a king, of um, Scotland, king James of Scotland, I forget, James II, James III. That's right, uh, 1460. Four, backfired into him, I think. Mm. That's right, absolutely right, at uh, Roxburgh, you know, at 1460. Um, there the cannon exploded, of course, but that was during a, the breach exploded, but that was during the siege. So it's not always the case, unless you're a long way back, you're in a dangerous position. I mean, uh, and then, of course, uh, I, well, obviously that changes with air power, but, you know, George III, George IV was not, were not at any risk of being um, of being killed by enemy action during the uh, War of American Independence or the French Revolution in the Napoleonic Wars. Um, 
Whereas um, George III, let's think, the Duke of Brunswick, who gets killed at the Battle of Jena Auerstadt in 1806, I'm pretty certain that's a nephew of George III's. So, you know, you, you know uh, members of his family get killed. George I had at least, I think, two brothers die in warfare, maybe three, but I think definitely two. Um, so, you know, warfare is tricky. And I mean, for that matter, um, you know, there's no doubt about it. Charles II could have been killed at Dunbar or Worcester. And um, Charles Edward Stuart could have been killed at any of the battles he was involved in, Preston Pans, Falkirk or, Cum or um, Culloden. So war itself is dangerous, but it doesn't mean people don't necessarily serve at it. And George II at Dettingen would have scorned the idea that he should not be brave. I mean, in a way, exposing yourself to danger was showing the very virtue, the very heroism, the very bravery, the very fact that you are a worthy descendant of great ancestors. So the House of Hanover was very proud of being descended of, from the Guelphs, the um, um, the uh, Dukes of Saxony of the 12th century, uh, William of William the Lion, that sort of person, I think same name of the Scottish King, I think, um, they he very much wanted to be, you know, uh, to be within line with what his ancestor would have done. Um, and you get the most improbable people. I mean, Louis XV goes to Fontenoy uh, for precisely the same reason. You know, um, this is what you should do if you are a king of France, even if personally it scarcely matches your, your hobbies or inclinations. Um, so partly I think it is the idea, but of course it also sits in a broader public resonance. Now, we're talking about the British monarchy and you could argue that there is an idea uh, for a long time that the monarch should lead, but there is also an idea that the monarch should serve and be willing to take on board danger. Now, this takes a number of different manifestations. You could argue that this is one of the uh, one of the factors of the royal family being in Buckingham Palace during World War II and experiencing uh, German uh, aircraft and rocket attacks. You could argue that it's an aspect of members of the royal family being willing to risk themselves, whether it was the future George VI at Jutland or whether it was Prince a a Andrew in the Falkland Islands. Um, so the, the notion that, that there is a willingness to serve is important in both the relatively uh, distinctive uh, idea, which is the distinctive idea of the military, and part of the, the role of the royal family has always been as the military leaders, but also um, in terms of the broader patterns of society, that this is the kind of heroic uh, thing that people do and that monarchs should be linked to the war effort. So I notice in the latest issue of the Critic magazine, there's a very fine piece by David Starkey on the modernization of the, of the monarchy under George V. And he refers to George V's determination to give honors to ordinary people um, and to be seen to doing that. Sort of munition workers and so on, and I think that that is indeed an important aspect. I mean, George V, in many senses, uh, was obviously 
helped by the greater success by far of Britain than, shall we say, Germany under, under his relative Wilhelm II or Russia under his relative Nicholas II, but also he responded ably to the circumstances he was in. And people might mock um, a king that insisted on, you know, teetotalism during the war or having very little bath water because he didn't want to use up heat. Actually, that had a resonance. That was important. And you have to remember that, um, as I discussed in our last talk, uh, there was a real danger to the monarchy posed by Edward VIII. Edward VIII's idea that something should be done uh, then, as it were, you know, becomes part of a pretty disgusting current, which is a, a philo-German, um, and, you know, which is also self-indulgent. And that would have been a very difficult war leader during World War II. And World War II was very challenging for monarchies. I mean, not just those that get swept away as in Eastern Europe, but for example, uh, Italy, which uh, where the king abdicates in favor of his son, Umberto, and then there is a referendum and there a republic. Um, and I think for the British monarchy, it would have been very difficult negotiating the changes of the late 40s, uh, the loss of the empire of India, the change in the status of the House of Lords, the first ever Labour majority government, um, it would have been difficult to negotiate that had the monarch been an Edward VIII who had acted a disreputable part during World War II. So I think that there's a lot to be said about the idea that how you, how you configure yourself in war is more than just simply leading, uh, providing command skills, it's more than serving in the military. It's also the way you comport yourself politically. And it's interesting that the image of how best to be a monarch in Britain, the kind of, in the 20th century, the kind of leading from the centre, interest in coalitions, um, is proves to be particularly pertinent for both world wars, which are coalition wars, uh, fought by coalition governments, as well as the national government in 1931. So I think the monarchy there is comported uh, by skill, by happenstance, by a variety of factors, and we could debate that when we have our separate discussion on the 20th century monarch, monarchs. But I think that then, then that takes us back into looking at earlier periods, um, that in a way, um, leadership in war in part rests on the monarch having a political sense. Now Charles I has very little political sense and therefore uh, leaving aside the maladroit nature of his treatment of the Scots, the idea that the king should be entrusted with an army raised in 1641 uh, to deal with the Irish Rising, the Catholic massacres of Protestants, uh, was politically just not on. Nobody could trust the king with an army. But nobody feels the same way about, say, Elizabeth I. Um, and I think it's fair to say that the Hanoverians, although they're obviously unpopular with the 
Tories, and as far as the Jacobites are concerned, not the appropriate monarch. Nevertheless, the Hanoverians, when they raise forces, do not then use them in order to suspend politi the political system and become tyrants. And we discussed last time the contrast between George III and Gustavus III of Sweden in 1772, when he, as it were, suppresses what was known as the Swedish Age of Liberty, the Swedish Age of Freedom. Um, George II, for example, you know, just simply, you know, he does quite well. Um, he His force, after all, suppresses the Jacobites. Uh, does he use that as an opportunity to try and force through the Whig ministers he wants? No. He accept, in fact, if anything, the need to keep an army in the field Held in the war of the uh, both the war against the Jacobites and the war of the Austrian succession against the French weakens the king's ability politically to uh, to try and operate in an, what you might call an unconstitutional fashion. Or under George I, the army is deployed to overawe London at a time of the Jacobite Atterbury plot. But does the king use that to then try? or the king's ministers for that matter, to try and effect major political changes? No. So I think a lot depends upon what you use the troops that you have for. And I think that's very significant. And here there are a number of things we can talk about. One, that the having a large navy is not going to actually give you, if even if you were so wished, much by way of trying to create some despotic rule within Britain. Two, the standing army in peacetime, the standing army is the permanent force in peacetime, was invariably small. And that didn't change really until, well, I suppose you, if you include, given that so many troops were located in the empire, it didn't really change until uh, the 20th century. And linked to that, a lot of the men under arms during national crises were militia or volunteer. So when there are threats of uh, French invasion, for example, in 1779, in 1805, very large volunteer uh, forces. And of course, Jane Austen writes about, uh, writes about these, uh, these, uh, these, these people, uh, the militia officers and so on. Um, and they inherently are people who are looking to the king as head of state and expecting him to act an honourable part, but they don't expect him to be the military leader. He, as it were, is the leader of the voluntary force as head of the government, rather than somebody sitting there and giving them specific instructions. And it's very interesting. I mean, George III, who never commanded an army in battle, um, regularly drilled uh, the volunteers uh, and visited the volunteers uh, during the uh, uh, French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars. There's a famous painting, I think it's a Thomas Beechey, of George III at the um, big uh, military um, sort of uh, manoeuvres, uh, essentially militia units, in southern England, in, in Surrey, in 1792. Britain wasn't that at war, but this was, uh, with the French Revolution becoming more radical, this was a significant show of strength. Uh, incidentally, I mean, I've already mentioned Jane Austen, because as you know, I've written a book about her. Um, Jane Austen's interest um, in 
militia officers. Again, where she was, she would have heard a lot about the uh, the 1792 uh, reviews, uh, and of course, she herself. Um, uh, new militia officers personally, uh, including in her family. Um, and George III in 1779, during that invasion scare, goes round and visits encampments on the south coast, and he does so again in the 1790s and in the early 1800s. So you can be head of the military, as Her Majesty is, without leading in battle. And nobody thinks of you as playing a wrong role there. Um, because I think there has been a change in the political culture by that period. Um, and in practical terms, George II did not need to lead the army at Dettingham. Uh, there had been a perfectly good um, Scottish general, the Earl of Stair, a protege who had worked of John, first Duke of Marlborough, who had served in the uh, War of the Spanish Succession. He was elderly by this period, but he'd been put in command of the army sent to the Low Countries in 1742, and he could have done the job uh, at 43. So George II isn't necessary. There isn't some enormous call which says, you know, the king must serve, um, but he feels he has to serve. Now, the situation is very different for William III in, at the Battle of the Boyne, but that's because it's almost a personal struggle between him and James II, just as it had been a personal struggle between Henry VII and Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth in um, 1485. So you've got a very interesting continuity between 1485 and 1690, but then a significant element of discontinuity later. If you wanted to hedge that, you could say the last element of the continuity was Culloden, because at Culloden, the elder son of the Jacobite claimant to the throne fights the second son of the Hanoverian monarch of Britain. And you could say that's right back in Wars of the Roses territory. But of course, that's the last example of such an episode. Mm. And the Jacobite rebellion and um, almost at the same time, just before the, the War of the Austrian Succession. War of the Austrian Succession is the last European conflict in which both the King of France and the King of England uh, are in the field of battle, albeit at different battles, Dettingen and, and, and Fontenoy for, for uh, Louis the Fifteenth. But um, how much danger would they have been in? Would they have been uh, literally in the front of their forces on a uh, on their charger with their sword drawn, or would they have been with their aide de camps behind their main lines on a raised ground, trying to survey the whole battlefield? Well, the latter was the norm. That's still pretty dangerous. <laughs> I mean, that's still pretty dangerous. I mean, you've got to be careful. Uh, Napoleon was struck full in the chest at the Siege of Regensburg in 1809. But because the bullet was, or shot, I should say, was fired at some considerable range, it only gave him a nasty bruise. Uh, on the other hand, getting a nasty bruise could well be dangerous. And as I've already mentioned, uh, other people, I mean, if you look at British generals in, let's say, the Napoleonic Wars, uh, obviously Abercrombie dies um, invading Egypt, Moore dies on the retreat from Corona, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I would say that um, 
you're in a vulnerable position, even if you're not in the front line. I mean, I mean, if you're going to be hit by artillery shot, um, being in the front line doesn't really matter. The way it works is that shot bounces along the earth. Um, now, if it's very wet, uh, the shot or sandy, the shot can sink into the earth, but otherwise the shot tends to bounce along the earth once it hits it. I mean, you know, it's solid, uh, solid iron and um, until it runs out of steam, um, as it were. And that's dangerous wherever you are. Um, the, um, so no, I, I, and obviously if you're on a horse, you are conspicuous and at a distance you are conspicuous. Um, the uh, standing in the front line can be dangerous, but on the other hand, it's very rare to come to bayonet point. There's an article, I mean, I read years and years ago of the nature of the wounds of, well, the exciting things academics read, the nature of the wounds of French soldiers in the Invalide after the Seven Years' War. And something like 97% of those were wounds from shot and only 3% from uh, bayonet, uh, the infantry this is. And that's because it was relatively uncommon to come to actually hand-to-hand uh, -hand combat in battle zones, uh, much more so in, um, in uh, skirmishes. And uh, it was more likely to have an exchange of firepower. Now, the exchange of firepower that is used is there are some skirmishes, but the practicality is and they tend to be armed with rifles. Rifles are slow of fire, don't carry bayonets, so are quite dangerous. The reality is most people are using muskets, smoothbore muskets, um, which, are, which you can have a higher rate of fire, but they are much less accurate. So what you do is you, in effect, fire a weight of metal in a given direction towards your opponent without much by way of aimed fire. And if you look at the drill, conventions. Its point, as it were, is the nature of aiming. You point your gun towards the enemy. Uh, you try not to have it too high or you try not to have it too low, uh, but that's about it. And <laughs> who you're going to hit is a big risk. Now, before you think that's ludicrously um, absurd, there's a marvellous book many years ago by a chap called B.P. Hughes, Major General B.P. Hughes, who was a firearms expert, British Army, and he uh, looked at the statistical rate of shot of causing accident and or injury, shall we say. And he argued that the rate was no worse in the 18th century than it was in the late 20th century. That in a sense, what's happening now, uh, people are using rapid fire uh, handguns, usually subautomatic rifles, um, which have, because of the rapidity of the fire and because of the way they're fired, they, most of the shots are going to miss. It's just that if you are, you're firing again a weight of metal in the expectation that some of them um, uh, will hit. Now, that's how they did it in the 18th century, except the weight of metal was provided by lots of people close back in a volley. But what it meant is you could point at somebody else 
uh, and you know they can survive. I mean, you know, even the great butchers' bill battle of Marlborough's worst battle, which was Malplaquet, which was 1709, where lots of people died. I, you know, nobody knows precisely, but it's generally argued about 30,000 people, which is a lot of people, well, casualties at any rate. Um, the um, you know the majority of the troops there on the battle survived. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, this is same at Fontenoy. They came very, you know, firing away at each other. The majority of people survived. But nevertheless, no, it's a good question you've asked. And um, I think it's fair to say George II was certainly under fire. Uh, he was quite proud of having been under fire, made him feel good. As a young man, he'd been at the Battle of Oudenard. And he was very proud of one of Marlborough's battles. He was very pr proud of being there. Um, his, uh, let's think, who is it? His brother-in-law, Frederick William I of Prussia, had been at the Battle of Malplaquet. He was, again, extremely proud of it. These men saw it as their role. They were thought of themselves as more manly. Now, we will have our own views on that, but that was much of the, that reflects a powerful cultural drive in an age in which people were not pacifists, you know. Well, what did the nature, I'm thinking about the British crown, did the nature of having a queen in Queen Victoria uh, from 1837 to 1901 fundamentally change the role of the head of state and um, her relationship with with active command, or was it more the fact that the wars that Britain fought during that period were, were far away from home and therefore, even if there had been a warlike uh, king on the throne, I mean, unless he went to the Crimea, he wouldn't have gone off to Africa or, or Burma or, or wherever else uh, the British uh, Empire was being built. That's an excellent question and an interesting one. I think that builds on what we were talking about last time in the way that George III, particularly in his later years when he isn't well, George IV, both regent and king, and William IV, who, although he'd been in the Navy as an elderly man, all of those start to change the pattern of monarchy. So Queen Victoria, as it were, is part of that process. Um, the, uh, as is other factors, neither her husband nor her eldest son, wish to dramatize themselves as serving. Whereas, interestingly enough, Napoleon III's eldest son, this was in exile, Napoleon III takes exile in Britain, his oldest son, known as the Prince Imperial, takes exile in Britain. The Prince Imperial joins the British army and gets killed by the Zulus in the Zulu War. Now, there is no equivalent in the British royal family, despite the fact there were plenty of spares that they could have sent. Uh, and George III, now George III, interestingly enough, he has nine sons of whom his, let's get it right, his fifth son, uh, Prince Ernest, Duke of Cumberland, subsequently Ernest I of Hanover after 1837, he does fight and take part in really dangerous combat. I mean, he was a man with his blood up, I think it's fair to say. Um, of the others, the Duke of Cambridge, who was the father of the other Duke of Cambridge we've been talking about, he is certainly in the army. Uh, I mean, one of them dies young, of course. Um, Kent is in the army, but he goes to be sort of governor of Gibraltar, governor of Nova Scotia, so not battlefield commands. And we've already mentioned William and Frederick, and the oldest George isn't interested. 
So there are still royal princes there, but nobody is suggesting that they should be pushed to the fore. So I think there's already a, ch a change. There have, of course, been female monarchs before. Um, Queen Elizabeth had clear views on when England should go to war. Um, you know, she was hesitant about going to war with Spain. Um, Queen Anne was, you know, an important supporter of the Duke of Marlborough for a long time. Uh, even, even though Marlborough had been, in a way, pushed into the his final command position under uh, battlefield command position under William the Third. Um, so Anne takes an interest. I mean, the good biography of Anne is by Edward Gregg. That's the scholarly biography. And, you know, it shows that Anne worked hard at her metier, despite being unwell. And, you know, the recent film that was produced um, essentially treated her, I, I'm, to say that it was frivolous would be wrong, but you know, it essentially focused on the relationship of the royal family, of the palace, um, and, you know, her relationship with Sarah Justice of Marlborough, and didn't capture key elements of Queen Anne, which is her strong and Anglican faith, uh, her religiosity, her political nous. Um, you know, none of those were really captured. Um, so it was a bit of a caricature of the, of, you know, I'm, I'm not denying it was well acted and I'm not denying it was beautifully filmed, but I think it's fair to say it told one virtually nothing. And if you're interested in Queen Anne, you'd be better off reading the Edward Gregg biography or reading the Francis Harris biography of Sarah, Sarah Duchess of Marlborough, which is also a very good one. And incidentally, mentioning other historians, I think that um, Linda Colley's piece on George III um, as, a, as it were, a symbol of monarchy in the 1800s, her argument that in his later years, he is less directly powerful politically um, and is more significant as a symbol of monarchy and therefore becomes more powerful. And that one aspect of his symbolic monarchy, I would say, is very much, you know, taking part in military reviews after all the country is under threat. Um, I think that's an important piece. It's an article in past and present, and I think it's an important piece by Collie. Um, so, you know, there are there is stuff out there that people can read. There isn't a good book on... Um, the role of um, the broader political role of the uh, military uh, spheres, and I'd underline spheres of the royal family. There isn't a good book on that. And I would also say, you know, there is a book by Hugh Strawn on the politics of the British Army, but I think I would say that there isn't really a good wide ranging long term study of that subject. Uh, and uh, I think it's an important one, because if we're considering what makes the British monarchy exceptional, uh, successful, uh, one does need to consider that sphere, which is why I, I think a programme on this topic is important. Well, we will discuss the House of Windsor's relationship with its uh, armed forces in, in, a, in a separate podcast as we discuss uh, the British monarchy in the 20th century. Uh, but for now, Professor Jeremy Black, thank you very much indeed. Excellent. If you've enjoyed listening to the Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.